Okay, good morning, Broadmore. Happy Labor Day weekend. Uh, so glad you're with us this morning on a uh, special weekend where a lot of our church family is traveling. Had some late nights last night. It's always a good day when both teams win, right? Sunday mornings are just a little more unified and joyful, I think, on those days. So thank you for being here. I know we've got some folks who are still out of town and uh, some of them are joining us online. I want to make sure that you know that you are welcome and we appreciate you joining us to study God's Word together and that is what we're going to do. So I'm going to ask you to go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 4, Galatians chapter 4 verse 1 and as you're turning I'm going to go ahead and read a passage for you from another reference and I'm going to apologize up front for reading this out loud but it's in the Bible so give me some leeway. All right, it says, Proverbs 26, verse 11. Proverbs 26, 11 says, Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Like a dog returns to his vomit, so does a man, a person, return to that which is ultimately disgusting. All right? Why would I share that verse with you on a Sunday morning? Well, church, I think a lot of us have found ourselves in that same similar uh, instance many times in our life. We know what is good for us. We know what is right. We know what is available to us. But we continue to go back to what is disgusting. Now, what happens in our home when we see said dog return to said stuff? What happens? Everything freezes. We pause and all focus goes to that dog to say we've got to do whatever it takes to get that dog out of the house, right? I'm jumping couches, I'm pushing kids out of the way, I'm kicking cats, I'm grabbing that dog and tossing him outside because all of my energy in that moment is I've got to fix this problem. Church, when we look at Galatians 4, Paul has a similar urgency as he's talking to this church to say, stop going back to what is disgusting. I have something that's true that is good for you. I have something that's true that gives something that's so much more fulfilling. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. I want to ask you as, um, as we study God's Word, Pray for God to reveal truth to you. Pray for him to reveal um, something that will allow you to grasp the goodness of what he has available for us as followers in Christ. Paul does this often through the book of Galatians. Um, just a, a recap, typically when Josh preaches, he'll start at the beginning of a, a book and we'll walk all the way through. This morning we're jumping right in the middle. So just a brief context Paul wrote this book to the church in Galatia made up of Gentiles. Now, Gentiles are non-Jews, but they are folks who have prayed to put their faith in Jesus. And this church is made up primarily of the non-Jew, the Gentile, who were followers of Jesus. And he's, throughout the book of Galatians, is teaching on this freedom and this good news that we have in Christ. That's where we're going to be going this morning, okay? So here's what's going to happen. 
I'm going to walk through the passage to make sure we have a good understanding of what Paul's saying. And then we're going to have some applications. And here's the three questions. Here's the three questions that we're going to answer. What does it look like when we return to the law or return to that which we know is not true or good? What does that say about what we believe? And then how do we respond? Those are our three questions. How, what does it look like when we do this? What does it say about what we believe? And then how do we respond? That's where we're going to end up. All right. So before we do that, before we jump into the passage, I'm going to pray for us. And I'm going to ask you to pray. And let's see what the Lord does as we trust in the word of God to bring transformation in our lives. All right. Father, thank you for this time together. I thank you so much for this passage. I thank you for Paul and uh, just for the way that uh, you used him to write this letter and what it says to us today. And Father, I pray that, that as each of us struggle with continuing to go back to that which is not true, that is ultimately bondage, Father, that today you would give us freedom. And uh, we trust you to do that work through your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so you there. Galatians 4 verse 1 says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is still the owner of everything. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child. So who's the heir and what is this picture talking about? So I'm going to paint uh, a, a little picture of, um, let's say, an estate owner, someone who is a, a father and owns this large estate. We'll call it a big home. He's got barns. He's got horses. He owns a lot, has a lot of money. This estate owner has a child. Now, this child is what? He's an heir. Uh, he is in line to receive all that this estate owner uh, owns himself will one day be his, correct? So he's an heir. Now, in reality, he has not received it yet, but he has the hope of receiving that at one time. But here's what he says. Paul says that this kid, this child is no different than a what? Than a slave. Now, why would Paul say that this child who is the owner or who is the future heir, no different from a slave? Verse 2, he gives us the answer. He says, but under the guardians and managers, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So here's what would happen. This estate owner, and this was common back then, this estate owner would entrust a guardian or a manager to help raise this child. And he would oversee this child and teach him. He would um, protect him. And he would essentially lead this child on what his daily activity would look like. He was, this child was under the guardianship um, of this manager. He would tell him when to get up, what to wear, what to eat, the things he needed to learn, how to behave. So essentially, this child at this season was still under the the leadership or the guardianship of this manager. And Paul's saying in this instance, he's not really free. He's the same as a slave because he's not free. How long does this last? Until the date set by his father. And we'll come back to this in just a minute. But the father determines when this child is now mature enough to step out from under the guardianship into a place of independence and freedom as an adult. All right. 
Now, verse 3, we're going to keep pressing on. He says, in the same way. Now, this is where Paul transitions. He just told this picture of um, the estate owner and his child. Now he's transitioning and he's saying, I'm going to speak to you as a church. Hear, the, hear me make this application. Paul says, so have this picture in your mind. In this same way, we also were children. Now, he's talking about um, the reader there. There was a point before Christ where he says, you were like these children. You were still, what? Enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. What he's saying is, in this time, just like that child was under the guardianship, under these rules, there was a time that we were under the elementary principles of the world. We were enslaved to them. Now, what is the elementary principles? This is important, so catch this because we're going to refer to this throughout the text. The elementary principles in the Greek refers back to the basic foundations, the ABCs or the building blocks. It's the foundational elements of how we live life. Building blocks are foundational elements of how we live life. Now, what that looks like in this context, there was a lot of interesting discussion in your commentaries. Uh, if you want to go back and do a word study, that would be a fun one for you to do this week. What we do know is that concept of basic foundational principles is consistent. The ABCs, that's what it is. Now, for the Jew, we're a little more confident in what that looked like. If you think about that, what would that be? What would be the basic foundational principles of Jewish life? be the law, the Mosaic law, right? They built everything around the Jewish law, the Mosaic law, and they built all their structure, the way they live life, the way they related to God was all built on this law. And what Paul is saying here specifically for the Jewish reader is that's what we were under. We were under this. We, um, we had to be essentially in bondage to uh, these elementary principles. Now, what does this mean for the Gentile? The Gentiles had their same elementary principles. They had their same code of how they lived. They had their same way of uh, a, attempt to relate to God. And here's what Paul is saying to them. Before Christ, all of these fundamentals, all of these basic components were ultimately incomplete, but further they were bondage. It's just like uh, as, a, as a parent, when we raise our children, we will give them laws or rules. Don't touch the stove. That's not a suggestion. That is just a straight up rule. Don't touch the stove. Don't run out into the street. At a certain stage for them in their life, that is a rule. As they grow and mature, there's a freedom to say as a child who's now old enough to make decisions out of freedom, I'm not going to touch the stove when it's hot because I don't want to burn my finger. But there's a, a maturity that happens that takes them out from under the law to a place of freedom. All right. And this is what Paul's saying here. Verse four, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law. Now, for us, when the fullness of time come, had come, this is a reference back to verse 2 when it said the Father made that decision of when the right time was. Here, 
our Father, God the Father, in his perfect sovereignty, complete understanding and awareness of where history is, said, in this moment, I'm going to send Jesus. And through my act of sending Jesus, I'm going to allow my people to move out from under the law into a place of freedom. And when he did that, in order to do that, he sent Jesus. And this is what we know about Jesus. From this passage, there's three things that I think are important. One, he was what? The son of God, which makes him fully God. But then it also says he was born of a woman. What does that make him? Fully man. Then it also says he was born under the law. He was still submitted to these elementary principles. He was a Jew. He was born under the law. But here's the fourth thing that you see and what we know, not from this passage, but what we know about Jesus is that he was the only one that was perfect at maintaining the law. He made no mistake, no blemish, completely perfect. And what does that make Jesus? It makes him the perfect sacrifice for us to move us from this place of bondage to a place of freedom because of the work that God did through Jesus. What is that work? Great question. Paul knew you would ask. He went on to verse five and he said, what what Jesus did was to redeem those under the law so that they might receive adoption as sons. All right, take a second and talk about redemption. What does it mean to redeem? What is Paul talking about here? To redeem means to be set free from, to be brought out from under the bondage or out from under the slavery of the law. So what Paul is saying is when Christ came, we were freed from that to be set free from the law, which gives us that new life. Now, here's a big word here that I'm going to introduce some of you are, are on it. Some of you will, uh, will follow with me on this. The word is justification. Justification. When we talk about being redeemed, what we know from Paul's letters throughout, Paul's uh, words throughout Galatians, but his uh, other letters that he wrote to the New Testament churches, redemption comes through justification. That is the work that he did. Justification is this. It's the legal work of salvation of being declared righteous through the blood of Jesus. Make sure you get this, this is important. It's the the work of salvation, the work of Jesus that we are now declared righteous by the blood of Jesus. His work did the work so that we are now in right standing with him. He did the work so that we are now found in favor by God, not because of what we did, but because of what he did on the cross. That's justification, being made right before God. That's a lot of good news. So far, we've been redeemed. We've been set free. We have new life. And he says, hey, but church, it gets even better. It gets even better because what happens in the end of verse five? We might receive adoption as sons. Let's take a little quick look at adoption because I think this is important for us. Um, we've chatted about this a good bit over the last uh, few weeks and months with the shelter initiative. 
I want you to tie this in here, and I'm going to help us do that in just a second. But the shelter initiative here at Broadmoor is a focus for us to, in response to the Roe versus Wade Supreme Court decision, we're going to engage and we're going to care for the fatherless. We're going to care for the mamas. We're going to care for the women, for the dads. We're going to step into this opportunity that we have as the church to love well. A big piece of this is going to be adoption. And what Paul says here is that we are able to receive the adoption as sons. So what do we know about adoption? Number one, our status changes. We're given a new identity. We once were this and now we are this. We once were alienated from God. We once were not his children um, in the sense of now we are now his adopted children have a whole new status. Key point here is that this status is available for everyone regardless of race, gender, background. We all are now able to receive adoption as children which was difficult for the Jew because the Jew wanted that to only be about them. And there was pride in we were his chosen people and now this adoption is available to all of us. Number two, our inheritance changes. We are now like that child. We can become heirs. Number three, our past is changed. We're no longer responsible for our debts. Now this is a big one. When when a child is adopted, whatever debts he carries with him now transfers to the father who has adopted. That child is no longer responsible for those debts. Hear the good news there. When we were children of Adam, what debt did we owe? We owe death and eternal separation from God. When we were adopted by the father, that debt was transferred. He took care of that debt. And now as adopted children, we have now an eternal life, an eternal uh, relationship with him. Church, that's good news. That's right from scripture. Paul's saying this is what happens when we're adopted. We're given all the privileges of the new family. We have a brand new name. And hear this, this is an interesting one for me and where we're going. That child did not choose the adoptive father. The father chose that child based on no merit, no value, but only by his grace that he look at that child and say, I choose you. Out of freedom, that was his choice. We were loved before he loved us and chosen in response to that redemption, that freedom that he has done for us, let's tie it back to the um, shelter initiative, tie it back to adoption. Yes, we adopt because we love people. Yes, we adopt because um, we want to serve. Y'all, we adopt because when we adopt, we paint a picture to the world of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we adopt, we say to the world, hey, what you see happening here, this is what my father has done for me. He's given me a new name. He's given me a new inheritance. He's canceled my debts. He's given me new life, not because of anything I've done, but he's chosen me. And when we adopt and when we support adoption as a church, we're saying to the world, hey, here's a picture of the gospel. Here's what Jesus does. 
David Platt went so far as to say it this way. He said, it's important to realize that we adopt not because we are rescuers. No, we adopt because we are the rescued. That's the beauty of what God has done in us that stirs us as the rescued to rescue others. To reflect his rescue of us. Verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The news keeps going. It keeps getting better and better. And Paul's making this case of why this is so good. He put a spirit in us that cries out, Abba, Father. So if you have justification, you have adopted adoption. In this case, what he's saying even further, he puts something, the spirit in us that allows us to cry out to him in the relational side of this thing. It's not that you're adopted and sit over there. It's that you're his child that you are now calling out Abba, like is in the word daddy, um, as, a, as a kid would call out to his dad. It's the same word that Jesus used in those moments of desperation when he called out to his father. He said, Abba, we have that same spirit that allows us to call out to God as our father in a very real and intimate way. It's not a distant thing. It's a very close, intimate relationship that we can have with our father. J.I. Packer said this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thoughts of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that person probably doesn't understand Christianity very well. We see God in a bunch of different pictures and that's just the way we are because he is incredible and we could not come up with nearly enough words to describe him we'll see him as lord as savior as friend all these things that are accurate and good but what packer is saying here if we miss the beauty and the value of seeing him as a father we have missed a very fundamental intimate picture of what it means to walk with jesus he's our daddy And we have the unbelievable privilege of calling him that and experiencing him intimately. Verse 7. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, the heir through God. Quick picture, just a reminder. As an adopted child, your heir, your, your inheritance is no different than what we would consider an unadopted child. What does Jesus, what what does Paul say throughout? He said, you're co-heirs with Jesus. We are sons. It's not separate for us because we're adopted. We receive the whole thing. He's that good to us to say, all that is in the kingdom, you inherit it. And that is, you inherit and that is your future. Church, that's unbelievable news. If you walk through what we have just said and what Paul is saying to the church in Galatia, You have come from this, and now you have been set free to receive all of these things that we just talked about. Verse 8, we're going to bounce back to the, I'll go ahead and say vomit, just to keep us going and get your uh, attention back. 
Verse 8 through 11, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those by nature who were not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? I'm afraid you might have, that I might have labored, labored, labored over you in vain. I'm afraid I might have labored over you in vain. What is Paul saying? I'm, it's that same urgency. You, you see his frustration here. Why? Let me give you some context. I told you that Paul's writing this letter to the church in Galatia. These are Gentiles who, who have found uh, faith in Jesus and they're following Jesus. But also in this church, you had something called Judaizers. Judaizers were super zealous Jews who said to the Gentiles, Hey, it's cool that you put your faith in Jesus, but that's not enough. That's not really sufficient. There's this Jewish law that we have maintained and held on to for generations, and it's not cool for you to try to skip out on that. For you to say that your faith in Jesus is enough, it's not enough. We have to add a little more law to your, uh, your belief system and how you follow Jesus. And so they created this mixture of law and gospel, which in the end really wasn't the gospel at all. It said the gospel's good, but not quite good enough. And so the Gentiles were trying to figure out how to, do we follow Jesus or do we return to the law? And what Paul is saying is, no, do not return to that. Because to return to that is to return back to what? the elementary principles. It's like returning back under the law. You were freed from the law and now you're going back to submitting yourself to the law again. It sounds ridiculous for us to do that. And I can hear Paul's frustration because this message sets you free, but yet you're choosing to return to bondage again. we're quick to uh, criticize the Gentiles, let's recognize we do the same exact thing. We do the same exact thing. If you've heard me preach before, if you've heard me teach, I have a history of uh, struggling with legalism, trying to perform for God. Now for me, I understood at salvation, that salvation was by faith alone, that it was me trusting in his goodness. I knew I could not earn salvation. But here's what I continue to do. I continue to try to earn my justification in the way I maintain my walk with Christ. I know I wasn't saved by works, but if I continue to work hard enough, maybe I will find um, that he's more delighted in me or more accepting of me. That my righteousness is somehow made better because of my performance. paint a couple of pictures. I told you where we were going to go. We we're going to talk about what this looks like. I want to step into that, that part of the sermon right now. I want to help you understand how this passage might apply to us today and what it might look like when we do the same thing that these Gentiles were doing. To do that, I want to explain two terms. One, performance-based identity and faith-based identity. Performance-based identity and faith-based identity. Here's what performance-based identity says. 
It's a striving to be justified through works. But it's captive in bondage. Faith-based identity, on the other hand, is being declared justified through our faith and the work of Jesus alone. Faith-based identity says my identity and who I am is based only on who Jesus is and the work of Jesus on the cross. So how does this flesh out for us? What does this look like day in, day out? Number one, it affects our confidence to approach the Lord. It affects our confidence to approach the Lord. Performance-based identity will lead to insecurity and or pride depending on our performance. Faith-based identity will lead us to have confidence to come before him based only on the blood of Jesus. Now, here's what performance-based identity will look like. You may not even come to church on Sunday morning because you feel so guilty and scared and afraid of how bad your week's been or how bad this season's been or you had a bad night on Saturday. Or maybe you'll come, but you'll hide or disconnect. You'll sing the songs, but you're just singing words. Here's what uh, faith-based identity will look like. We show up here on Sunday morning and our confidence to come before the Lord and be a part of this church family and sing is not based on our performance. It's based on the fact that we've been justified by the blood of Jesus. Have you ever had those times where you've walked in on Sunday morning and you feel really good? because you've had a good week, you did your quiet times, you shared the gospel, you gave a little extra money in the plate, you walk in, you come down to the front row and you're excited to worship because you've had a good week and God must really be pleased with me this week. Versus the weeks where you come in and you know you're defeated, you know what we're doing there. What we are slowly and very um, subtle, what we're saying is that my confidence to come before God is based on my performance. Church, anytime our confidence to approach Jesus is affected or based on our performance during this last week or this last season, we need to take a step back and fully understand what the truth of the gospel is. And I still do it. It's so easy to return to that, which is destructive. Number two, it will affect our willingness to be vulnerable in our relationships. It will affect our willingness now <clears throat> to be vulnerable in relationships. Josh has talked a lot about knowing and being known. Here's what happens. Performance-based identity will lead us to hide from one another or to protect or to inflate our goodness when we're in relationships with others. Faith-based identity will provide us with the freedom to be vulnerable. Because our value is not based on our performance. Our value is based on what he has done and he has made us right. So that when we step into relationships, I don't have to step in and compensate by telling you how good I am. I don't have to hide from you trying to pretend that I'm not bad or that I'm not sinful. I am who I am and I'm only justified through the blood of Jesus. 
So when I come into a relationship or when I come into a group setting, we walk into that group setting and what do we celebrate? We celebrate that we are all just beautifully adopted children who've been given a new inheritance and a new hope and a new name. And we, in, we are in that group in freedom because our value and our confidence is not based on what we have done. It's on who Christ is and what he has done through the cross. Number three, it affects our motive for religious activity. Performance-based identity will create unhealthy motives to serve and obey, while faith-based identity will lead us to develop more and more pure motives to serve. Performance-based identity will lead you to be exhausted. It will wear you out. And if you wake up and you feel this pressure to constantly be saying yes, what we need to check ourselves on, are we looking to serve and to do more things and be more involved in more religious activity because we're seeking validation? Because we're seeking to be justified. We're seeking to, be, to feel more right in God's presence because we're super active at doing religious things. Faith-based identity leads us to a purity of motive. Now, can I just pause right here just real quick? This is not a, an on or off thing. It's not like I have pure motives and I have impure motives. And this is the progressive nature of what I'm talking about. Our whole life, we will be in this battle to drink deeply and to soak more and more in the truth of the gospel. You will never get to the point where you say, I got the gospel all figured out. I've internalized it and I am free. It is a daily pursuit to take the lies of Satan and replace it with the truth of the gospel and go deeper and deeper and deeper in that truth till the day we die. And when we see him face to face, it will all be made clear. And what will we realize? It was better than we thought. That deepening of understanding of the gospel is what leads us to out of freedom choose to serve, choose to do things for people, choose to be kind, choose to volunteer for the shelter initiative. We do that from a place of freedom and joy, not out of pressure and bondage and some kind of artificial obedience to a law. I'm way over time, but I'm not skipping this next one. It affects our ongoing struggle with sin. This understanding affects our ongoing struggle with sin. Please hang on with me here. Hear my words. I feel a little tension sharing it with you because I have a, 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 a conviction about what Paul is saying here. But it does cause a little tension. Performance-based identity will actually lead us to greater bondage to sin. Performance-based identity will lead us to greater bondage to sin. Ironically, legalism creates great sinners. Legalism creates great sinners. We feel like the, 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 uh, the tendency is to work harder and to strive more and to be more obedient to the law. 
in an effort to perform for him to try to find justification. Here's what happens though, y'all. That just leads to more bondage. And here's why. From that place of trying to perform, to earn my identity, to earn my justification, what happens is you always fall short. It leads us to exhaustion and frustration and depression and sadness and shame and guilt because we sit over here knowing that I'm not good enough. And we don't trust in the goodness of Jesus. We trust in our own goodness to try to earn favor with God. And we're completely exhausted. And from that place, what happens? We look out there and whatever that thing is out there in your life, and you have it, that thing becomes really attractive. That shiny object gets really, really shiny. When you're in that place of fatigue and guilt and shame, you want to break out of that and run after that sin. And what are we doing? We're running after the thing that's only going to steal more hope and more joy. It's only going to be a thief and a counterfeit that's going to lead to more shame. But what happens when we sit in the truth of what Paul's talking about here? Our heart is stirred. When we understand that we're justified before Jesus and we're made right before him, then we sit in joy and freedom and his forgiveness and our righteousness and our, our position with him. Church, that works in our hearts and it creates a desire and a longing and an affection for him. Faith-based identity is the only place to find victory over sin. That is our only way. When we sit in, in, in what he has done for us, he changes our hearts, we long for him, and we choose out of freedom, obedience, from a place of love and desire. It is counterintuitive because our typical approach to overcoming sin is pressure and striving and white knuckling, just trying to do it better. Here's my tension. I don't want anybody in here to think that I'm not um, valuing sanctification that I'm minimizing wholeness. Absolutely not. We want to pursue holiness. We want to pursue sanctification. Repentance is a huge part of the daily walk with Christ. My encouragement for us as a church is to understand what Paul is saying here is that sanctification is not the question. It's what needs to happen in our heart to lead us to sanctification. It's what needs to happen in us, what do we believe? What do we understand about what the truth of God is that works in our hearts that leads us to be followers of Jesus who are growing to look more and more like him? Please don't hear me minimize it. Yes, there's tension there. Paul talks about the tension a lot. We talk about tension in our podcast. It is highly likely you'll hear some of that tension this week in our podcast. You might want to check in. 
But it's real. The last thing we want is for people to not pursue him and grow. But we also don't want us to flip to the other side and go back to under the law and pressure trying to earn our justification before Jesus. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. And I want you to, to um, just take a moment and let's pray in, in just a few moments. But I want you to think about um, what this might look like for you. We've talked about what it looks like when we return to performance-based justification. I also told you we would answer the question, what does it say about what we believe? Why do we do it? Here's Paul's proposal. I don't speak for Paul, but looking at his books and his letters, this is what I think Paul would say. He would say, we continue to return to these elementary principles because we have limited understanding and a limited trust in the goodness and grace of Jesus. We have a limited understanding or a limited confidence or trust in what Jesus has done. We forget or maybe we've never understood how good the good news is. Church, the good news is better than we think. And our desire and hope is that each day and year that progresses, as we go deeper and deeper in that understanding and trust in that goodness, that we experience the fullness of what Paul's talking about when he says we walk in freedom, not in bondage. Really what's happening here is it's a belief issue for us. Overcoming sin, why we serve. These are not um, effort issues. These are belief issues. And the invitation for us this morning on how we respond to this, the invitation is where are we going to place our trust? Where are we going to place our confidence? And there are some in this room who've said, I've, I've never really understood the good news at all. And I want to place my faith in him to provide justification for me. I want to be made right through the blood of Jesus because I have no hope to do it through my own effort. Some of you are in this room and you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time and you continue to struggle like I do. And you keep striving and working and performing, trying to create some kind of justification to make you right before God. And this morning... I want to invite you to stop and think about what it is that you really believe and what you trust. And pray for God to reveal more of the gospel truth to you. It's a daily prayer for me. God, reveal the depth of your goodness of your gospel and let it transform me. And that might be the spot that we need to be this morning. But wherever you are, um, I want to invite you to respond to that and let's see what God has for us today. I'm going to ask you to stand. um, There'll be those down here at front. And if you want to respond to that uh, by coming forward and talking with somebody, we'd love to talk with you more. Um, But let's see what God has for us today as we rest in his goodness.